1: Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. We are broadcasting from 3CR Studios. Uh, we're live today in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website and our podcasts are on the Freedom of Species webpage. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend, and I'm Kate Gracie, <laughs> helping me today. And today we go into the wild, or more aptly what's left of it. I know that sounds negative, but we'll, we'll get to that, Doug. Um, our guests today are conservation and wildlife photographer Doug Gibbsy, who has, among other things, studied bioethics under Peter Singer, and has crafted a refreshingly ethical approach to his work. And, later on in the show, we have serious final alarm bells. Our Victorian forests and the inhabitants within are threatened more than ever. Much of our forestry and wildlife are on their way to becoming museum pieces if we don't take action. Diane and Karina from Knitting Nanners of Telangi also join us in the studio today. So, welcome to you all and thank you so much for making the time for Freedom of Species. Thanks Thanks for having us. Doug I'll start with you. Photos can be a a powerful weapon working for and or against wildlife and conservation. Um, Can you give us some examples uh, that influenced you to become a conservation photographer and specifically how you do that?
2: Yeah certainly. There's a wonderful National Geographic photographer called uh, Joel Satori. Uh, He's been working for 20 years and in about 2012, he'd spent three weeks uh, doing a series on koalas in Queensland, and until that point, the government hadn't declared them as imperiled in northern Australia. And uh, Joe took a series of pictures, as, as Joe, Joel would do, cute ones in trees, but he planned specifically to do one photo in a, in a rescue shelter that was a series of koalas that had been uh, killed and mauled by dogs. And what happens is Nat Geo published that. It runs around the world, and a few weeks later, uh, the Australian government declare the koala is imperiled. So it sort of showed to me the the positive impact that just one iconic type of uh, wildlife photo can have. You know, on the negative side, you know, I've seen lots of uh, photos work against animals. I think the one that really pushed my buttons was uh, a tiger um, in Asia being photographed. Uh, I guess we'll call it a selfie-type photograph with a queue of people waiting to uh, have a photograph taken with a with a with a tiger and of course for a tiger to be photographed it needs to be drugged declawed detoothed um and so there's an issue on how you treat the treat the animal itself but also i think it says something a little bit more to us using animals as a means to an end and it it's probably talks more to the issues i currently have with a, a lot of people taking selfies with wildlife generally i think uh Photos with wildlife can be good, um, I've seen it used really really well as ambassador animals but I think the key thing is um, how the animals have been treated and what it's being used for and again I think it falls out to uh, issues with this um, use to selfies because there's been a little bit of research on, on selfies that um, show that uh, there's a correlation with narcissism and psychopathy for people who take more selfies and those who edit them a lot, um, a little bit more self-objectification. And, wow, um, okay. It's a little bit frightening. I don't know, and, and, you know, the data doesn't suggest that if you do it, you've got it, but you are. Um, there is a trend, and I think uh, my concern is that...
1: You can hear all the phones being put down. Yeah, down. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, the,
2: the, the concern is, like, when I was younger, no one, if they were going to the Grand Canyon, would say, oh, you're going to the Grand Canyon. Um, could you please take a photo and let me know what you look like standing in it? <laughs> I mean, you, you wanted to see the Grand Canyon, or, you you know, David Attenborough doesn't doesn't say you know, all these shots are going to be taken with him standing in. In the foreground yes. um he'll he'll talk through the issues and it's it's interesting i before i came I, I checked out the definition of narcissism and it's a belief that you're smarter more attractive um or better than others with an underlying security and psychopathy involves a lack of empathy and regard for others as a tendency towards impulsive behavior and we sort of see those characteristics
1: well especially with trophy hunting photographs i guess that's a whole
2: we see that with people who have tweet twitter control issues yeah. as well at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that classic trophy hunting where I need a photo of myself um, with the animal I've hunted um, says something about the person. Why, why do they need that? I mean, there, there are some arguments for trophy hunting. Um, uh, Namibia has been doing it very, very well, um, interestingly, and in the um, number of species have increased um, due to a control and a trophy hunting, but I still think it says something to the values of people who feel that they need to hunt for fun, and secondly, have to post a photo. And yeah, so this is what reflection. I've... reflection, yeah. Yeah.
1: Let's go into when you consider photographing animals. You ask yourself two questions that pose primary ethical issues. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, Paul certainly. Yeah. Um,
2: two, uh, for the type of photography I do, um, one is, is the photograph honest or genuine? And the second one is, what impact is, are my photographs um, having on the animal or the situation I'm taking, both at the time? And also uh, in the future. So the the challenge with photography is that you know, photography never really captures the essence of being there. I mean, we we can look at a photograph, but being there is um, is a very special moment. And by the choice of lenses we use, the shutter exposure, um, you know, whether we go black or white, whether we go wide angle, that changes what we see. So photography is never. A true representation, but I think it has to be genuine. It's like, if I went there, could I see it? So the first thing I, I look at is um, are the photographs honest and genuine? Um, and that means not photoshopping anything in or photogra- photoshopping anything out, but that's for the type of photography I do. The use of Photoshop is fantastic for artistic work. The second thing is, what impact um, does taking the photograph have on the animals? And that's that's a challenge because you've both got to look at the impact at the time of capturing it Am I stressing it in any way? Am I changing its behaviour? You know, baiting is not allowed in international competitions. And then the second question is, what does the future impact have? And I, a lot of the photography I try and take, is about trying to take photos that will change behaviour, change policy, change how people see the world, people see animals in a in a positive way. But there's a there's a there's a tension there because, and I've never done it, but if I if I had to bait an animal to take the iconic photo, that would then save a species, whilst I would be changing the animal's behaviour by baiting it, I might save a whole species. Would mm. I do it? So I don't questions, know.
1: So many aren't there really?
2: I've never never had that dilemma yet.
1: Yeah, well that's a good thing. Uh, you are tuned in to 3CR 855 AM Freedom of Species and we are chatting with Doug, Doug Gimsey. I don't know why I have a problem saying Well that you started today. off
2: with dumb. It's got, <laughs> it, 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 it,
1: it's got <laughs> better, at least it's dunk
2: now. We'll, we'll, we'll get there at the end.
1: It's quite a simple one. Doug quite a simple Gimsey, name, an ethical wildlife and conservation photographer. Um, let's look at examples, the way in which your work illuminates issues we need to know more about. Uh, you are a finalist in the 2016 Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards for your image titled Caring for Joey. Tell us about the Kangaroo Island project, how that came about.
2: Sure. About two and a half years ago, uh, my partner Heather and I were um, Kangaroo Island for a holiday. And we noticed a lot of wildlife uh, roadkill. On, on the side of the road, and we well, that's 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 a lot of that's a lot of roadkill, and especially in a in a place where the South Australian government slogan slogan is uh, Kangaroo Island, where the wild things are, and and most people I've spoken to say there's a lot of roadkill, but one night we were driving back and we saw this kangaroo sitting on the side of the road, really close, and we thought that's really strange. It was sitting there, so we slowed down, and then we did a U-turn, and we, as we got closer, we realised that um, it had been hit by a car, and. I got closer and it's a femur had been snapped uh, clean through and it was alive and it was trying to pull itself off the road and we had this epiphany moment where I suddenly realised that what we see is roadkill some of it isn't killed straight away dies this slow horrible death and so did a little bit of research and found out that over 50% of wildlife that's hit on the road especially the larger ones don't die straight away Um, they die these slow traumatic deaths and so I've actually changed the term to road trauma in my piece and and then doing more research found out the majority of road trauma occurs between dusk and dawn 94% of all animal impacts in South Australia are kangaroos and wallabies Uh, the majority um, occur in speeds over 100 kilometres an hour and then on top of that, running straight through Kangaroo Island, um, the speed limit's 110 kilometres an hour, and there's no dusted to speed limit reduction like you might find in South Australia. Uh, sorry, in, in places of Tasmania. So i just
1: marrying those two slogans you mentioned. So they say where the wild things are.
2: Yeah, maybe it should be where the wild things were.
1: 110 k an
3: mm-hmm. hour. Okay.
2: Yeah, right. and so to me it just seemed.
3: On a little island, too. It's not like you're tearing across
2: the Western Australian outback. Oh, I know, you've, you've got to save your seven minutes um, cutting across the island. If, Hell, yeah. yeah um, you
3: might be trying to get to that ferry.
2: Yeah, you couldn't leave seven minutes earlier. <laughs> oh, look, there, there, are, there are some challenges there. There, there are um, time limits and things like that. But the issue is um, the majority of um, them happen between dusk and dawn. And we know that slowing down does two things. It, reduces the number of um, collisions and there's been some research published in uh, Melbourne recently on that and it reduces the impact energy should an, an- animal be hit. So it's intuitive we do it round schools you know during peak times you know we have reduced speed limits round schools. Kangaroo Island um, haven't taken that on board um, as yet and I think there's a couple of issues uh, with it. One is a cruelty issue that they're allowing Um, or not doing as much as I believe they could to reduce um, the impacts and there's always going to be accidents uh, of course but um, other states and other countries have done speed limit reductions between high risk periods and I don't think they haven't implemented that. And I also think there's a a potential negligence issue because they get up to 200,000 tourists a year and uh, about a third of those are from overseas. And most of those don't know to slow down between dusk and dawn. They don't know that kangaroos jump out on the road. They don't know those things. So, you know, to me, it's a little bit like um, the locals know, but the tourists don't. And that would be um, like having a, a swimming area where everyone knows there's a rip and not having, you know, beware of the rip, slow down. So I think, you know, I think. Yeah. And i haven 't been successful as yet in this in this campaign it's been running for a year, but well it's uh, still
1: going in it it's gathering momentum. I noticed you 've um, done quite a, a lot of work with the kangaroo Island project mm. and um, you also obviously work a lot have worked alongside and gotten to know a lot of the wild beautiful wildlife carers there and you posted this video of Sandy, a mm-hmm. wildlife um Carer, uh, and I might just play the audio first before we discuss it. She's referring to her, her, her rescue pickups mm-hmm. from the side of the road. Can we play that? Kate? sure.
4: The worst one I ever had was uh, someone rang me and they said that there was a, a kangaroo um, bowled over over on. Pelican Lagoon area, and I rang the National Parks um, to get help, but they couldn't get down. They said that would be a 45-minute trip down there, and if they were to come down, then that would... Kangaroo might have even crawled itself off into the bush, which is very likely could happen if it was, you know, a foot breakage or something like that. And I've had that happen on Island Beach Road, and I've had to put them down myself down there as well. But um, so I said I'd go around and I'd check because they said it was between yay and nay and we weren't quite sure. So I said I'd go around, check this kangaroo and then I'd ring them back. And um, when I got round there, I couldn't leave it because the joey had been flung out. The joey was dead. And then the... It's just really hard because when you hand-rear them, and you understand, they're just like people. And they're individuals and they have feelings and they hurt. And because this little girl, she was stunned. And I couldn't leave her for him to wait to come around in 45 minutes. So I had to do it myself. And then when I rang him back, I said, I, I shouldn't have had to do that. Um, that was uh, unfair for me to do that and the comments that he made was that um, I'm just emotionally involved with kangaroos which I am and um, but I've done it since then but that one is the one that sits with me the worst. Mm
1: Tell us why you thought it was necessary uh, to show people that that side of, which is basically trauma that a lot of wildlife carers go through. I mean, Sandy choked up there. And
2: and Sandy's been doing it for 20 years, and that rescue was probably 10 years ago. So, you know, I'm no psychologist, but I'd say um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, having spoken to a lot of wildlife carers, the the stress and trauma that they they go under they're they're first on scene for these things no different to ambulance officers or um paramedics and uh clearly those people who um care about animals uh, um can get deeply totally traumatized by it and so i thought it was important also to show the wildlife carers perspective as well because it's it's sad i mean they they, they pick up the pieces from these uh these events and these consequences
1: as you said before they Often the road kill doesn't. I mean, the animals, the individuals don't die straight away. Mm. Not that that should justify it in any way. But so wildlife carers, there are so many out there that just do brilliant jobs anonymously, out of their own pocket, oh, all I, through the night, all through the day. They're just um
2: absolutely. And I, I showed you um, before we started, but I went to a, a, a fruit bat rescue, and this fruit bat had been caught on barbed wire for. Um, probably a couple of days and it was caught both by its feet and its penis and it had been wrapped in the barbed wire. And, you know, it's horrific and you know, it's horrific to see but then the, the rescuer had to cut it out and then we had to go euthanise it. So it's it's uh, terribly sad and, uh, and yeah. not easy thing to do and, and that's got to be stressful for them. I, I said to the lady, um, because I'd been considering being a wildlife um, rescuer, and I said, look, I couldn't do it. I'm happy to take the photos but I don't think I could do this. i um, It's just too hard, too heartbreaking.
1: So, you, you've been running around with Lawrence Pope, the very well known uh, bat ad- activist. Can you?
2: Well, engaging, engaging with Lawrence, but uh, um, more with our <coughs> Tamsin, uh, who runs friends, uh, Fly by Night Bat Clinic. Is that right? Yes, Fly by Night yes. bat, bat Clinic. Um, but no, I'm engaging with them. I'm, I'm working on a, um, a piece that'll probably take me a year to look at the, <laughs> the plight of fruit bats in, in Victoria, which will cover the stress they're under due to climate change and uh, continuous heat. Um, stress events and also the challenges of the uh, loss of habitat getting caught up in uh, inappropriate uh, fruit tree netting and barbed wire that's my, my next fun gig i'm doing
1: well you're using your talents appropriately and kate i think you've got a
3: question for yeah look i i saw uh i went down to the the wildlife photography of the year exhibition in, in July. July, which mm. is still running it's is it it is. still running
2: it runs till may and then it's in National Maritime Museum in Sydney.
3: Right. Yeah, well I went to that on the day it opened in Geelong and it was amazing. It was the photography there was just astonishing. And I do remember your photo. I remember that photo because it just told so much. There was so much going on in that shot of these of the jo- people caring for joeys. Hmm. And the and the self-sacrifice that was going on. And the simplicity and modesty of these of what they do. And it was it was a very compelling photograph. And all those photographs in that gallery um, at the National War Museum in, in Geelong were amazing photos.
2: Yeah, I feel pretty humbled to be one of them, to be honest.
3: Yeah, I mean, they get so many entries. They get something like, I saw the numbers. It was something like half a million entries. 50,000. Oh, 50,000, 50, 50, was it? I thought yeah. it was bigger than that. I no, it's, f- it's 50,000. Anyway, that's a lot. And so they sort through 50,000 and pull out, what was it? There's probably a couple of hundred. 100. It's amazing, mm-hmm. amazing photos. I so I encourage anyone to go down and see that before it moves into state. And um, I just find I find what you do like photojournalism. Photojournalism is so powerful to tell a story. I'm really interested in. I'm professionally interested in climate change communications, and I've come to my own conclusion that you know that we're no longer. People don't if if people aren't reading well, you can't really. I don't think we can capture people anymore through writing because if if people are, r- are reading about about climate change or they're reading about animal conservation they're probably probably already engaged in it mm-hmm. they're probably already on board but that photos can get the people that aren't on board do you know because it's just it's one image and that can tell so much without having to sit and read through a newspaper article. Yeah, I mean uh, which people don't really read the whole article yeah. and they don't they, <laughs> well, see, it, they it, skim the heading and they go oh do I want to read the rest no that sounds boring but a really amazing photo can just can change someone almost in a few seconds.
2: National Geographic work on the principle you have you need a great photo which will drag will draw people in and then you need a great title that explains the situation then if you're lucky, people will read the piece. But it very much starts with the great photo and I think to your point about uh, images, we look at that awful photo of the dead Syrian child on the Turkish beach. Didn't need much copy with that. It was was a technically really poor photo as well. It was overexposed, bad colour, but it was such a poignant photo. And that might
3: have added to it because it made it look It wasn't staged. It wasn't. There was. It hadn't been contrived. It was Mm. just a snap, and that maybe add to well. There was a
2: couple of things that really added to it. One was um, the the child was wearing a red shirt, and psychologically, red uh, um, will increase your blood. Um, right. Your pulse and your your blood pressure, so right. it, it it engages a, a an emotional response. And secondly, the child was facing away, so it was de-identified. So no, it can go. Oh well, it's a it's a this this nationality or yeah, this nationality yeah. was totally de-identified, so yeah. it could be anyone's child. So it yeah. was. Uh, but That's you're right. The Very,
1: point. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: might change the slant a little bit. Um, you have posted some questioning thoughts about zoos. Can you tell us about what, what you're floating about in your I have lots of story. questioning
2: thoughts. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I posted to a photo I took of a child looking through the glass at a gorilla at Werribee Zoo and I, I probably posted a couple of comments. Um, one was is actually was based on a, a philosophical concept of regulation, uh, believe it or not, where people talk about the freedom of the jungle with all, all its dangers versus the safety of the zoo with all its confines. And to me that's, a, um, I guess, a welfare animal concept. But the other one is... Um, the comment I, I posted was: "What costs must individuals pay, especially sentient ones such as gorillas, for the benefit of um, species of the tourists?" And I think zoos have a, um, a tension between the, the animal rights issue and the species conservation uh, issue. And zo- zoos have evolved, uh, and over the last one hundred and fifty years, I mean, zoos originally were for scientific research—the London Zoo, um, eighteen twenty-six, I think—and then evolved for amusement or entertainment and then evolved for education and now evolved to include um, conservation. And I think this tension is between animal rights, should we just let them be where they are? And some would argue that conservation doesn't um, justify keeping animals in captivity. Um, There are some um, people who say things like, if zoos really cared about conservation, they'd put their resources behind habitat protection and anti-poaching. And that's a really interesting argument. I think on the other side, though, conservation... Zeus do a fantastic job as well. We've seen um, ambassador animals, which raises awareness, and if people engage with an animal, uh, it's a little bit contradictory to my selfie comment, but if people see a cheetah or something like that and they see it in the flesh, um, we know that that changes people's views on things and they go, we've got to protect it. So I think that one-on-one engagement can be really, really important. Um, You know, they they have breeding programs and reintroductions as well. Doesn't work for a lot of species, um, but it does work for some. research sharing knowledge but coming back to the bats they also do a fantastic job in supporting community groups Um, i know that friends of the bats can take them to uh, some of the damaged injured bats to zoos victoria to hillsville or the melbourne zoo and they'll look after them and they'll x-ray them and then release them back so they do a great job for that as well so i don't think it's black and white um but i do i do see the conflict between animal welfare and just let's let them be in the wild with all their dangers but let's look after them let's learn something so we can look after the species so i guess it's individualistic sometimes versus species but it's a it's a there's a tension
1: yeah there are and and you're right but we want black and white answers sometimes in this fast-paced world and there there isn't and we look at things in binaries too Mm. often and this is it's good just to we're, re- we're in a process of re-evaluating how we relate and are teaching, are, are relating to and keeping or um, being the custodians uh, for wildlife and wilderness, uh, which we'll talk about more later. There's one more thing before we go to a break. The Threatened Species Commissioner suggests we should be able to have wildlife as domestic pets. Last week. And at the same time, the United Arab Emirates bans keeping wild animals as pets in the last few weeks. So open up the discussion to everyone.
2: Wow. We're really out of touch
1: this government, aren't we?
2: Didn't see that question coming. Um, (laughs) It's it's a look. It depends how you define wildlife Um, and keeping something (coughs) as a pet. Heather, my partner, and I recently came back from... um, Botswana where we've been doing some work with Cheetah Conservation Botswana and they uh, there's a, a reserve there where you can have interactions and engagements with um, cheetahs and the, the two cheetahs uh, came from a mother who'd been killed and those cheetah cubs would have died if they hadn't been taken into captivity. Once they're in captivity they can't be released back into the wild so um, I guess it comes back to the zoos. I don't have a huge problem with um, having wildlife in captivity but i think for most things it comes down to why and if you're just having it as a as a pure pet mm.
1: um yeah to me it just opens like we 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 can't regulate our own uh, you know the domestic pet well that's <laughs> true situation anyway opening up to wildlife i think and to wildlife traffickers, as if um i think world animal protection commented on that it's um it's an interesting point yeah,
2: because dingoes are concurrently be kept as as, yeah. I, guess, I don't like the word pets. It's sort of got this hierarchical does, concept, uh, yeah. but but as companion animals, maybe because I don't think we'd argue with companion animals, or maybe some people would. But again, it comes down to the animal. I think and if, the if you're not the if AD you're not stressing role, yeah. it out. I mean, I know people who have dingoes and they do a fantastic job, and the dingoes are great, and the relationship's great, and the animal's not stressed. And but then you know, I look at people that have birds in cages that are two feet by two feet, and I go, birds are meant to fly. Yeah. Really? Should we? Um, yeah. So okay. I think if you bring it back to animal welfare question um, and you can tick that box, then I don't disagree with it. But I don't know the specific species. Um, yeah. Michael, it was Michael Gregory, I guess, was, uh, not Michael Gregory, um, Species it's Commissioner. Written, um, uh, name.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Gregory Andrews. Gregory Andrews, Andrews. Yeah. thank you very much.
2: i not sure how general he was being or how specific.
1: You are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR855 and we'll take a short break and speak about The alarm bells ringing for, well, many of our species in Victorian forests due to the extension, partly, of the first forest agreement announced Friday. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. Uh, we are now going to um, focus our chat with Karen and Diane from the Knitting Nannas of Tulangi Group. Welcome to the program. Can you tell us the backstory of why your group developed and why the name Knitting Nannas?
0: We initially started um, as a group of concerned locals Um, we saw that there was a a logging coop in Tulangi called Leo's Foot. And uh, we uh, were concerned about the um, kickback from a few of the forest protectors that were doing some, you know, things to alert people to what was happening in that forest. Can you describe,
3: sorry, where Tulangi is?
0: Oh, Tulangi is about 20 minutes north of Healesville. Okay,
3: on the outskirts of Melbourne. On the outskirts of Melbourne,
0: yeah. Would be about 69 Ks around. Very quiet, very beautiful. Um, The majority of habitat there is tall, wet forest, tall, wet sclerophyll forest. Um, We were really concerned about what was happening with these protesters, and um, a group of us decided to do a a couple of things. One of these things was a walk into the, the forest while the logging was happening. As a way of saying, you know, we care about this forest. We are not the only people who are kicking up a fuss about this logging. And another time, four of us decided to lock lock on to machinery. It was a it was a big thing for us. It was um, I can imagine huge, huge. And so four Telangia grandmothers locked on to these this machinery, gave the loggers a little bit of a shock in the morning, as you can imagine. Um, but it it brought some things to the attention of of various people. We sort of started to realise that this was actually a thing that we needed to do. We wanted to we wanted to bear witness to what was going on in these forests. We wanted to show people. We wanted to encourage people to participate in what was happening up there, even if they couldn't come and demonstrate or or you know do anything like that. And a lot of people don't want to do things like walk-ins I don't want to be you know a hardline activist um, so we started knitting a scarf um, in response to some legislation from um, the then agriculture minister which made it um, against the law to come within 150 meters of an active logging coop um, and so that scarf we advertised it and people started to contribute to it And so I think that scarf is probably about 200 and something metres now. The last time we measured it, we had to actually put it into pieces because it was really unwieldy. And we use it to decorate some of our um, knit-ins when we decide to do them. Um, So that was basically a way of showing people that, hey, it's just not, you know, your long-haired protesters. Not that there's anything wrong with that (laughs) at all.
2: (laughs)
4: Not just the tree huggers. (laughs) Yes, bless them. Yeah.
0: Um, and to ch- try and change that dynamic between the, you know, these are the only people, these are the people that protest. No, it's ordinary people, mm. you know.
1: Yeah, and yeah. people that want to actually, even if you live in the city, um, people that want to visit these places, we've really got to take action, mm. don't we? Mm. Because If we uh, want yeah. to
0: keep visiting these places.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, can you just, let's paint a little bit more of a picture of the forest, if we can, on the airwaves. Airwaves. Tulangi is the home to mountain ash forests, you mentioned, and can you you paint more of a picture about the
5: importance of the forests themselves? Well, they're, um, they're a water yielder. So when you step into that forest, it's a wet sclerophyll forest and it draws the the um, moisture out of the atmosphere and it brings it down into the earth. And pretty much that's feeding your Yarra v- Yarra River, which is coming down to Melbourne. So you've got tree ferns, you have um, some of the tallest moss in the world, which you won't find anywhere else. Um and you have some, uh, basically, uh, all, it's a very complex ecosystem. It's not a monoculture where it's quite basic and this is something that uh, is discussed regularly with trying to broaden people's understanding. We're not just bringing down some trees and it'll grow back. It's actually a very complex ecosystem. And one that is home to,
1: uh, a lot of our listeners, listeners would have heard about the lead beaters possum, which is now critically endangered, and uh, greater gliders are threatened. So again, they're two species that have been um, you know, photographed, dug or whatever. The attention's been put on them because they are critically endangered as ambassador species for the forest. Um, now, they, the Leadbeater's possum can only breed, is that right, in the mountain ash?
0: In the hollow
5: trees. In the hollow trees. That's right. Okay.
0: Yep. And the trees need to be 100, 120 years old before they start to develop hollows. Mm. So okay. once you start knocking them down on an eighty-year rotation, which is what's currently happening, there is no chance for those that habitat to develop into le- to and that's when
5: they're beginning to hollow at that age. And yeah.
1: they're just beginning to hollow after sorry, one hundred
0: and twenty.
5: One 100, hundred. One
1: hundred and twenty. Oh, yeah. right. Now you advocate specifically for tulangi, but you also speak for um, and advocate for a larger portion of fo- forests, all the forests left in Victoria. Is that right? Yeah. And you are working towards establishing the Great Forest National Park. Mm-hmm. So to tie them all in together. Now that do you know the the area of that, can you just where's that? What does yeah. that cover?
0: It actually joins a number it actually joins a number of different national parks together, King Lake National Park for instance, Yarra Ranges National Park. Um and it oh, ends cool. up to be around about five hundred and fifty thousand hectares. Um, so it's, it's extending the existing national parks by 353,000 hectares, so they're, you know, roundabout. So it's
5: extending up to Borbore as well, so it's... Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's covering a great now, area. Now, mm.
1: let's get to the nitty-gritty. On, on Friday, Premier Andrew signed off to extend Royal Forest agreements, which a lot of us wouldn't know about, um, for another year. So he's opening them up for logging. Now, the thing is, a lot of people would be shocked to know that these agreements exempt the logging industry from complying with the Federal Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. So, stick with me, it gets a bit confusing, but I'm asking for clarity here. So, the exemption is based that the state logging regulations would protect the federally listed threatened species. So... Basically, the exemption from the Act is based on basically they'd self regulate. Yes. But the fact is that they're nationally threatened species. So yes. the state exempts the mm. logging industry of
5: any. That's right. Mm.
1: Mm. ...NPVDC Act of re- compliance. So uh, all, right. the, all the so species why? are fair game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: Have I got that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit like having the hen look after you took house. But sorry, oh, the, fox. the fox look <laughs> after you took house. I would like the
1: hen yeah. to look <laughs> after. Yeah, yeah, sorry,
0: yeah. <laughs> wishful thinking.
1: And I'm also confused because Vic Forests also admit the scarcity of saw logs. Mm. So can you explain how this can happen and how Vic Forests severely—they're failing us here.
0: Yes, they are. But the really good thing is that they're actually admitting that right now. Mm. We're actu- actually really happy to see Vic Forrest say, hey, the, res- the resource, in inverted commas, isn't there. We can't give you that much. That's actually fantastic. OK. So, you know, it, it's a way. It's a good way in the right direction. However, they are still not doing the surveys that they need to be doing. They're, You know, it, it's still a situation where... Um, independent community surveyors are having to go out there at night time and survey these forests to make sure that there is some protection for species like leadbears, possum and greater gliders.
1: So who's doing that? Who are these independent surveyors?
0: A fabulous bunch of young people called WATCH, Wildlife of the Central Highlands. Um, They've been doing an amazing job. They've saved, and I can't tell you how many hectares, they've saved a lot of forest. I wish I could have that number, but I don't have it in my head <laughs> that's, at the moment. I think
1: it, that's amazing. But it's, it's just it yes. called on these individuals in yes, this who are volunteers
0: to come for. Wow. doing what Vic Forrest are meant be to doing. be doing. Hmm. But because of the self-regulation, how can you know? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> there's that fox again.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thumbs up. Watch.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it
1: is interesting because in the media, there's been like Hayfield Mill kicking up a fuss that they're going to have to sack all these workers. Now, their company is called Sustainable Hardwoods. Australian Sustainable Hardwoods. Australian Sustainable Hardwoods. So for someone who doesn't know much about the whole issue, be like, oh, they're okay, they're the sustainable hardwoods, got to keep those workers there, You, you, you kind of, you don't know, you're quite confused as to what's really going on. They've also asked the government for $40 million to keep the sawmill open. While we know there's not enough saw logs there, Vic Forests have said there's not enough there.
5: Yeah, well this is counteracting their argument because one of the main arguments they present is that the forest grows back. Clear felling, they have regen burns, the forest will grow back, but yet there's not enough timber, there's not enough resource. For them to harvest anymore. And we have Hayfield Mill, where the owners are saying that Vic Forests aren't offering enough timber for them to ma- uh, sustain their industry. So Mills was bought by Guns four years ago for $28 million, and Guns bought it for $69 million. Now they're asking for taxpayers to retool. And supply the money so that they can retool for forty million dollars, so that they can use younger forests, which means that they'll need to cut more of the forest down, and therefore it's young forests. They're smaller logs. They're not good for, for uh, standard. What do you call it? uh, Milling. It'll be more for chipping, and so therefore it's bringing up again this image of these guys are not thinking in the long term. They're thinking in the short term. They're not, and this has been the biggest problem here is that they haven't foreseen that the supply is going to run out. They haven't looked after their workers, their work. They haven't educated their workers so that the that the workers can transition into new areas. And so, you know, now, but they still continue to blame the greenies. So, as such, to say that we were the ones that are causing the problems when they're not taking responsibility. So.
2: Can I just make an observation? Any organisation who has the name sustainable in their name and then asks for $40 million <laughs> it's not sustainable, is an absolute that's right. joke and not sustainable. That is just <laughs> absurd.
0: There's this thing called greenwash.
2: Yeah. Well, no, that, that's just stupid. I mean, I'm a sustainable business. Can I have $40 million bucks? Mm. I mean, really?
1: It's part of their mm. strategy, though, as you were saying, isn't it? Well, it's not sustainable. sustainable keep, yeah. Sustainability needs hip- to be
2: long-term. And clearly they can't manage... Their business, if they to what the ladies were saying, and there's a great hypocrisy
5: because when you have um, the Ford industry where they've lost hundreds and hundreds of jobs, and yet they're here asking for forty million dollars for two hundred and fifty jobs. And I mean, why is it? Like all of us, we've all transitioned into other areas of work. I have. I've moved from care worker to teacher to actor to you know. We've all got to be kind of broaden our horizons, and yet why is it? that we can't, you know, actually highlight life for these workers and say, let's move into other areas. We don't need to stay in that one job. Let's educate our workers. And And Hayfield owners should have foreseen that. They say that they did. And so, therefore, they haven't put in education programs for their workers, and that's total neglect.
2: I just did the maths. You could give them all $160,000 and say, go find something else, have a nice day.
5: Do you know what? It'd it would be cheaper for them to price. go to Bali for one year and have some time out, actually get <laughs> some perspective and come back and have a new lease on life. <laughs> You're putting
4: ideas I, out there now. I,
2: I wonder how many workers are saying, no, I'm not doing that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> really? <Yeah.
1: laughs> it, it is, um, these environments are home to countless individual species and that is something that we don't regard as highly important that's what i'm hearing you know these environments we're saying in these actions are not important
0: i think it comes down to a a different a a different ideology on both sides and i hate the word ideology but you have one side saying this is our and I, i have a little quote from facebook recently um, from, from a logger who says, how can they, when every election cycle, our resource diminishes due to green ideology? Vast tracts of forests are locked up for no scientific reason except to attract city votes, and this has been happening for decades. Now, there's a few points there. Our resource. So there's that ownership that the industry appears to have and that it grows back that it doesn't seem to recognise the fact that it is a complex ecosystem. Um, <clears throat> and also this demonisation of, either, you know, green voters, ecologists, protesters, people that actually care about our environment. There's this, this clash here mm. that seems to be happening. And I, I'm, I've, you know, I think that's probably one of the reasons why, just going back to why we started, was that it's not just protesters, it's not just... It's a lot of people who are coming out and saying, hey, no, we care about this environment, it's important. It's an ecosystem, it's not just the trees.
1: Yeah, you're listening to uh, 3CR Freedom of Species. Um, I'd like to just open up that a little bit further. What do you think, um, you know, you've got, we've got wildlife now that need our protection. We've Mm. got whole vast areas that need our protection because they're disappearing really. What do you think needs to be... What are the stumbling blocks here? Is it, is, have we just got a big disconnect? Or
5: I think things are put into an economical um, vision. What money... What am I going to get out of it? Is it tangible? If I can get it... You know, if I can fill my pocket right here, right today, then let's go for it. And, I mean, rather than actually taking a risk, investing in our future, investing in our environment for the long term and this is I think overall when you look at Australia when it comes to gas whether it comes to mining whether it comes to now lot the timber industry it's all short-term thinking and we're not actually investing in our future and it, it basically gets down to economics.
2: And I, I think that falls from values. I think um, we look at um, you know, the concepts of generosity, kindness, empathy seem to be uh, diminishing to those more selfish values of you know mm. greed yeah. and, and things like that and I, I think there's a, a values issue happening I just we look at the u s um, current political situation it's all me 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 and that's um, there's been a lot of work done on um, values and values are uh, they believe are a little bit like muscles the more you exercise them um, the stronger they become so if you practice generosity and kindness and empathy and all those uh, what are known as um intrinsic values people become kinder and more generous and if you engage in the others you become the other way and i think we listen to all the discourse and all the politics i think victoria's uh, 2036 the next 20 year biodiversity draft one of the key objectives is personal well-being and economic growth that's just a total selfish it's all about the reason we want biodiversity is to serve us rather than to have it as a value in its own right so i think there's a a whole discourse issue that needs to change.
1: We also have Heather in the studio, a great videographer that works with Doug. You did some research on how biodiversity is conceived in the general public, can you tell us about that?
6: I did, it was, it was part of a larger um, research project that we did in 2015, but like Kate, I'm interested in the social aspect of conservation, and one of the questions we asked in this survey of 503 Victorians was, can you tell us in your own words, what does the term biodiversity mean to you? And astonishingly, almost half of those people actively said that they didn't know what it meant. They used terms like, I'm sorry, I don't understand this term. I'm not familiar with that term. So they were pretty clear that they didn't know what it meant. But there's a good news story about it, though. We categorised those answers into two other classifications. And one of them was a conceptual understanding. And what that meant was that people sometimes used different language to associate what they thought biodiversity meant and they used really lovely terms like um, nature's balance and uh, peaceful existence and harmony and things like that. So I think it, it presents a really nice opportunity for us to, to use different sorts of language to engage a broader um, proportion of people to, to perhaps care a little bit more or engage in biodiversity protection
3: like that. I like that idea of, of adjusting our language because we've mm. kept it. Our language has been so clinical up mm. to date. Mm. Mm. And if we maybe if we use more um, beautiful language and, and sort of embody our language with beauty and it can tr- maybe translate.
6: Yes. Mm. And I think some of that language actually, to Doug's point a minute ago, does you do associate some of those terms more with more generous um, values like generosity and empathy mm-hmm. so perhaps it's a way to to try and exercise those values
5: it's been an, that is a very interesting uh, topic of conversation within campaigns actually is how do because you can preach to the converted but how do you actually start communicating and finding a language for those who are not on your side of the fence and that's one of the biggest kind of hurdles is how do we connect with, say, ex- for example, um, the timber industry workers? Because they don't, you know, they're not necessarily understanding that language. They don't connect with that language. They actually have a different culture. So, therefore, how do you appeal to them so that they're, they're feeling like you're understanding where they're coming from? Well,
2: there's actually been a lot of work done, came out of the WWF in the UK and, and is actually being done in Australia. Um, it's called Common Cause. I think it's commoncause.org.au, but it talks about that because if you look at, um, you know, I'm sure all the timber workers are good, decent people who have those great values of caring and empathy. It's it's just where it's focused on on a what time period and everything. So um, there's there's some really good work there. It was just coming back to the use of language. There was a really interesting study done that looked um, in the New, in London Times, I think it was, and just looking at the use of the word, consumer versus citizen, and they grafted it over time. And when you look at it, the use of the word citizen dropped off and it was replaced by the word consumer. Wow. And so so by by using the word consumer when we talk about people versus citizen, if you think about it, if I, if I have a discourse with you and say, look, as a citizen of Victoria, let's talk about the rainforest or, or whatever, versus as a consumer, your whole mental process and how you think about these things change so I think we need total discourse change Mm. as well
5: if you want to speak a similar language or learn the language there are some opportunities to (coughs) connect with those so that you can learn more or don't or not to feel so disempowered sometimes we can be caught up in our lives paying off the mortgage trying to keep up with the kids and what's going on in our our personal lives and yet we can look at the environment and feel quite disempowered about doing anything and um but there are some things happening where you can connect with community and connect with
0: uh like tell us mice. more tell us more oh lots of things happening tomorrow night at 5:30 on the steps of parliament there's a, a snap visual for threatened species so you know, pertaining particularly to the, the uh, regional forest agreements, because we need to we need to let Daniel Andrews know that this is really not acceptable. Mm. Um, <clears> he <throat> sold off what we don't have. There are no trees. Successive left governments to have been doing yep. that for the okay. last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, Sustainable Living Festival, um, Friends of Leadbeater's Possum, Great Forest National Park. We have a stall there next week. Come and say hi. We'll be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Next weekend. Yes. Come and say hi. Um, we've got info, pamphlets, leaflets, people there who can talk to you about the issue. Look it up online, Sustainable Living Festival, for yes. more details. Yes. Also, tomorrow night, just coming back to tomorrow night, singing for Telangi. Renee and Kim, who came up to the Telangi Sculpture Trail um, and helped one of the artists, Avis Gardner, to with one of the sculptures then went off and had a beautiful idea to have a choir so we're going to be singing at the vigil for threatened species tomorrow and at a gathering for the great forest national park on the february 21st on the parliament steps right so those dates into write your diary. those down yes yeah.
1: we'll, we'll put them on the podcast <clears throat> page and facebook page thank as you well. I- Mm. The singing for Talangi's is a great idea. It's like oh, it's singing beautiful. the environment back. Come on, people! Mm. It's beautiful. Yes. So that's all culminating. All these
0: rehearsals that are happening are culminating in the gathering for the Great Forest National Park, that's and beautiful. just decided that the vigil for threatened species on Monday would be a really good idea to go along and give it a bit of a practice session.
3: Yeah. What time yeah. is that at? That's at five thirty at the steps Houses. of Parliament tomorrow. Awesome. Yep. Great. And so those details are, can be found on Facebook, I suppose. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So look up nannas. singing for tulangi, knitting nanas, or vigil for threatened species as an event. Or Gunjera. So I think it's on the Gunjera Environment Centre. Oh is that? Gungera Environment Centre, I think it's on their Facebook oh, page Goongra. as
0: well. Yeah. Gungera.
3: Sorry. Yeah. It's totally yes. and we'll,
0: we'll put all the details up on the nanas
3: page. Great.
1: Yeah. You're listening to Freedom of Species on three C R eight double five AM and we've had a great discussions that are still going um, about and also Doug Gimsey's photography. It's been great. I've got to just share this story with you. Last week I was walking through the botanical gardens and I was walking behind a family with about two or three kids and one of the kids ran ahead and started jumping monkey style in one of the beautiful big trees. And his father yelled out, I think it was his father anyway, No, you can't do that. It's like being at the museum, mate. It's like you can't ride on the stuffed tiger. And I just had this moment. I thought, wow, this tree is a museum. I love the botanical gardens, but I'm not saying that, but it's like it really hit home the importance of your campaign because seriously, if I want to go and see these beautiful mountain ash forests, or go and see this concept of wilderness that I have in my mind, I, I won't be able to. I'll, they're all heading for the museum in the not-too-distant future if we don't really get on board. You don't have to be a greenie. You don't have to be a tree hugger, whatever. Just guys really... Um, the dear am I old, freaking hard enough here? Yeah, With the, the nice dear old something. truffler I mean, tree, you know, I mean, Dr. Seuss. Oh. I, I know friends of mine that are, <laughs> don't like wildlife, like they've got you know they just want it away out there and maybe if they want to go on a retreat you know that mm. they, they have city people have this a lot of people have this concept of wilderness mm. or something that's going to always be there when they're ready you know and and maybe do have a nice meditation or go for a, a walk one day take the kids if you want to do that time is is really running out am i being too dramatic no i think uh, not at all. it's
2: an interesting term because um when you look at the history of the world, word, word wildlife it was or wilderness it was wild it was it was a place where it's wild so i can understand people in the city don't want to be in a place that's wild you know maybe we need to change it to nature or something like that i haven't really thought through the thought but um but in in china there was um, some recent uh research that came out that uh, they were taking children to see the panda bears but the kids wouldn't get out of the bus because the wilderness was all deemed to do with germs, and you know they were wearing their you know, masks for bacteria and everything, so they view, viewed it as a dirty place. Well, as we're well. quite
5: similar in our schools because the children aren't allowed to swing, they're not allowed to climb trees, and there's even a school that's in the CBD where they've got, the children have got plastic grass, they've got the, the walls of the of the high rise, and their um, playground equipment is plastic. I mean. We are setting it up, you know. We're educating our children that nature is something that you don't really connect with. So,
1: yeah, we've got to choose it. We've got to yeah. choose to keep our wild places wild. All right, I think. Thank you so much for that discussion, guys. That
3: was great. I think you've got a few more community service announcements, Kate. I do. I do. Um. So, in Annalee, that's in Brisbane tonight. There's an information and pizza evening regarding the upcoming slaughterhouse vigils in Brisbane. And that's being staged by Brisbane Animal Save. Then their first slaughterhouse vigil is taking place in Beenleigh up, up there on Tuesday, February the seventh at four thirty p.m. And Melbourne Cow Save is doing outreach in the Bourke Street Mall next Saturday. That's February the eleventh, starting at eleven a.m. And also, oh no, this is also that same day, Saturday, February eleventh. Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign is doing a beach clean up at Amity Point Beach on North Stradbroke Island up in Brisbane. Um, yep, that's Saturday, February the 11th, and that's starting at 8am. So, yes, I've just got uh, one more thing from Doug, a petition.
2: Yeah, uh, I should have spruiked. I'm not good at spruiking. Um If anyone wants to sort of try and engage the uh, wildlife issue in Kangaroo Island, uh, www Dot ki wildlife, trauma, dot com sends a petition to those who should care
3: that's great yeah get on board um, and just want to say big thanks to everybody to Doug and to diana and Karina and to all the knitting nanas and Heather and Heather of course and um, you can contact us on info at freedomspecies.org you can get us on Twitter on Facebook or on our website freedomspecies.org Thanks, heaps, for tuning in. Stay tuned for Psychedelia* coming up at 2 o'clock. And what's taking us out? Taking us
1: out is a song called Wild Animals by Cat Empire. See you next week. Bye.